0: The Sluts and Scholars.
1: Want to hear more? Follow us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, or check out slutsandscholars.com.
2: Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Simone. And I'm Nicoletta. And this week we have Elise Geithner, who I went to college with. Wait, where'd you go to college? Stanford!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Simone likes to make fun of me for always saying that. But anyway, uh, Elise grew up in Washington, D.C. and New York in a family that talked pretty openly about most things, including sex and death. While at Stanford, with me, (laughs) she studied adolescent sexuality (laughs) and human sexuality and was the teaching assistant for these courses after taking them. She majored in human biology with a focus in child development, was a peer health educator in her sorority during her senior year of college. Um, In that role, she led some awesome workshops for women in the sorority about healthy sexuality, pleasure, consent, and relationships. She was and continues to be the go-to person in her friend group and beyond for sexual health questions and overall health and wellness. I know the feeling. Now she's in nursing school in Philadelphia studying to be a pediatric critical care nurse practitioner, and she loves to use humor, storytelling, and science as a way to empower people in their bodies. And she listens to Sluts and Scholars. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. We're super excited to have you. Um, so yes, uh, Simone always makes fun of me because I always find a way to work in that I went to Stanford. Whatever, it's fine.
0: least do you do that too? <laughs> uh, it's challenging. I, I, It depends my audience. Sometimes I say, I went to school in California
2: mm. and uh,
0: then people pry a little bit, but I am very proud of it. And then if they try to, you know, make a comment like, ooh, you must be smart. I just say, I had a great
2: time. <laughs> Oh, when people say, ooh, you must be smart, I just go, Yep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that would be good. I'm I'm working on I'm working on accepting compliments. I call it inhaling compliments. I'm working on that. That oh, would be good.
2: I, I agree. It's harder to just say yep, because there's that little moment of nervousness where you're like, are they gonna think I'm an asshole? Or am I just like aware that I i Am in fact intelligent. And so you think pretty. you're. So you think you're cute. I'm. I'm also very exactly. Cute. I'm so both think you're cute pretty? and smart. Yeah, so you I'm think also you're pretty. pretty. Oh, did Wait, you this see is the mean? Guys. Did you see the Mean Girls on Broadway? By the way, I saw it twice. <laughs> of course, <laughs> my friend wrote that. That's so funny. Okay, I want to talk about adolescent sexuality because yeah. you just mentioned okay. that. Okay, we people are weird about it. People are weird about it, and like we don't. I feel like there's the conversation is growing about in, in terms of adolescent sexuality, like with Peggy Orenstein's Girls and Sex. Um, so, uh, well, what your fascination? Well,
1: we took a class um, on it, and at the end of it, you had to sort of make your own like curriculum. And I don't remember exactly what yours was about, but I would love for you to tell us.
0: Sure. Um, so, what I did is I tried to be really uh, focused and narrow in it because it is so... Such a broad topic. And so I thought, okay, I want to make a really good curriculum for 10th grade girls. And I did it as if it were, it were going to be taught at my high school in New York. Um, so I could tailor it to a specific audience. And it was awesome. I made like a parent's guide. I made a book that would be like the textbook for the students. And then I made the teacher curriculum and I did it for a, to be taught over a semester. And I have never published it, but I've used it on my own just in working with teens and in working with adults, actually. And I guess I would love to publish it one day. I mean, there's a lot of incredible sex ed material out there that I've seen that's really, like, empowering and for all different types of people in all different bodies. And mine was really specific because I felt like there's no way I can tackle this whole thing. Yeah, I'm for only sure. one person. There's only so many experts I can consult, but, but it was cool. And I think it was interesting for me to examine, um, the idea that we are uncomfortable with young people having sex. We don't think and enjoying that young, it. young, old, disabled, sick, like all these people have sex, but They do, yeah. And they can enjoy it too. And so I wanted to make sure I included things in the curriculum that I was never taught. Like what? And I don't think I even really—I don't think I even realized what those things were until I went to
2: college. The sex things that you were talking about. Well, I, for example, didn't realize where my urethra was until junior year of college. Wow, I forgot about that. Yeah,
0: that's true. I mean, that's huge. Like that's a huge discovery. And I think oh, it that's was. it true was for incredible. a
1: lot of people.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, even if you have right? <laughs> even if you haven't been able to
1: use it in a published way, obviously you've used it in a lot of different ways. But like, what
2: did you include? Yeah. What did you add that you feel okay, like you were? I talked taught?
0: about pleasure. I talked about pleasure. Mm-hmm. So I I did like kind of a basic Huberty thing. Um and what I wanted to address in puberty that I felt wasn't addressed, and Nicoletta, you'll remember this from our amazing teacher, Lisa Metoff. Yeah. She Shout was out great. to her. Um, she's extraordinary. And and she always said to us, you know, people have this idea that adolescence arises out of a vacuum and people have all these raging hormones and they act impulsively. And it's true, people literally talk about teenagers as these out-of-control beings. Yeah, angsty um, and full of things. Yes. And that, you know, their, their experiences with their bodies are so tortured. And yes, it's true that can happen, but I wanted to make sure we talked about, yes, the facts of puberty, but then also like the emotions and that it's, you're not some crazy person whose body's taken over by adult hormones. Like it's just like a natural part of life and it can be challenging, but it's also cool and beautiful. And so I talked about pleasure. I talked about consent. I talked about friendship. I talked about Body image. So not everything was sex. I've but it never was just even heard about, somebody say that they included friendship. I love which that. Which seems so important. Yeah. And I can't believe I like didn't think right? of that. Yeah, you need it. And, and I just remember that in high school, I remember it being challenging when within my group of friends, we, our bodies were developing at different paces and mm-hmm. our yes. interest in sexuality and relationships developed at different paces. And I, I, no I had no idea like what that was until later until I got through it and then I was able to see oh yeah you know we all grew at our different pieces and that's great and we all had different experiences and different goals and I do remember uh writing a piece where I wrote that my best friend who was my best friend in like eighth and ninth grade then traded in our friendship for eyeliner and boys (laughs) (sighs) but you couldn't Um, have that together yeah, like I I like wanted to also still be her friend, but um, we were just, you know, developing at different paces. So yeah. yeah, I addressed that in it. And I also, the thing that was really important to me about the curriculum that I did is that I also had a parent's guide. And so it was important to me that whatever was being addressed in the theoretical classroom by the teacher and the students then had a component um, that the parents could use at home. I mean, this is a very idealistic But thing, I mean, I right? think that's like, so
1: necessary because most parents aren't taught how to yeah. talk to their kids about sex. And so right. that's where a lot of the struggle comes mm-hmm. from is like not being able to have those conversations and parents feeling awkward with themselves on like how to bring it up and what to talk about. Um, but they're so, totally. I mean, the kids are so lucky that they had you. And I know because you sent us this whole long list from when you did a sex education thing at a high school. Firstly, how did you get the the job there, and Mm. how long did you do it for?
0: Sure. So, like most of nursing school, it's not— I call it work, but it's really, like, free labor or, (laughs)
1: like— I hear that as an intern, as an MFT Uh, intern, yes. Yes.
0: I am sure you can relate. Um. But what I did is I was at a public school, high school this spring, and I was not given any formal assignment or anything. I was supposed to be basically learning from the school nurse and interacting with students as they came into the nurse's office, kind of triaging and, and to see if there were things that I could deal with. I would say 90% of the students that came into the school nurse's office, ninth grade through 12th grade, were there for emotional support or discussion or mm-hmm. question and answer ten mm. percent uh, were like physical ailments okay. and um, then of that ninety percent of like emotional things, most of them were sex related. and so I just went up to the gym teacher who was the one teaching sex ed and I asked if I could sit in on his class that's and so said, that's well, so cliche
1: it. it's the gym teacher. Why is it the yeah, gym teacher? exactly.
0: Because it's like the only person who has availability
1: in their schedule. <laughs> oh,
2: exactly. Because there's no homework to grade? E- I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, who knows? But it was a very small class. Um, so, right. So anyways, he said, you can teach a class. And I said, well, what have you been learning? I don't want to interrupt the flow. He was like, well, we're supposed to be talking about sexually transmitted infections. I was like, oh, sex is like my favorite health topic. Um, <laughs> that's so great. And then I asked him if there was any specific thing he wanted me to cover. He said no. And sounds like this the, person should um, really
2: the, be teaching sex <laughs> in.
0: So. Yeah. He, he really was not very enthusiastic about it. And I think he thought I was joking because sometimes people perceive my extreme uh, enthusiasm as like <laughs> <Yes>! facetiousness. I, <laughs> Simone
2: understands that. I fully understand Do you struggle that. with that, Simone? Yes, because I am wholly enthusiastic about like so many things because so many things are right? so interesting. I've been watching
1: the um, updated version of Anne of Green Gables, <laughs> Anne with an E, and I keep telling Simone
0: <laughs> she has to watch it. <laughs> uh. Yes. But yeah, I mean it's— so I think he thought I was kind of a joke, but then he saw that I actually wasn't. So basically, he, he, I got one class. So it was the, it was like the second to last week of school. They had had prom on a Wednesday night because they thought it would discourage debauchery. But of course, it just made <laughs> oh, yeah, people sorry, not show up the sorry, next day. Can't drink, it just made people hungover. Can't drink,
2: I have class tomorrow, said nobody <laughs> ever. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I was leading sex ed.
0: For the health class the day after prom whoa so it was a small group but I think that was better and um it was mixed age levels so I think I had like ninth, 10th and 11th graders more boys than girls men oh, than women however we want to call people and um we sat in a circle and uh I brought um ice pops like uh organic-y ones like <laughs> phallic ones I, I didn't want to give them crap Organic-y ones. But like you know, phallic, oh no, she like asked if they were phallic
1: for, for use for the for
0: the. <laughs> oh, yeah, they were phallic. Sorry, I thought you said <laughs> orgasmic-y. They were definitely phallic, <laughs> I have never kind sucked, of broad. I've never
2: stuck a push pop in my vagina, but now I want to. It's just being very cold. It, yeah, seems, you like could. A, it seems like a yeast infection waiting to happen. You should do it without sugar. Maybe not it. if it's organic. Maybe just, <laughs> Maybe just ice. Maybe I just want to stick yeah, ice cubes it, it in my vagina. should definitely not— be a sugar situation because yeast love glucose, as you just said. I know. I'm so good at getting um, yeast infections. It's honestly a talent. (laughs) A
1: talent of yours. (laughs) If you're comfortable with it, I would love to read. I know you passed around a box for people to be able to ask anonymous questions in your class. Um, And I would love to just, like, read what some of those were. Please do. Um, Dramatically. Okay. One person asked, what is the female orgasm?
2: How did you answer
1: that?
0: Well, the, the amazing thing is that I was um with a—I forgot to mention that I was with a classmate of mine, and she and I have completely different styles of talking about sex. Mm-hmm. And um I looked at her for that one because <laughs> I was completely caught off guard, even though— I'm the one that's really open, and that is, like, such an incredible question. Yeah. And I wasn't really sure what the person meant. But so what I thought was really interesting is that the way my friend chose to answer it was to describe how it is achieved in a variety of ways. Oh. Which was really interesting. So she didn't say what it actually is, right? I kind of said something like, oh, it's kind of this, like, this, like, kind of uh, pleasurable feeling that your body might kind of, like, shudder and... Uh, kind of like squirm around and it like feels really good. But she, I, that, I said that afterwards, but she was like, well, some women achieve orgasm through clitoral stimulation, some through penetration. And she kind of took it in that way. So that was really interesting. And everyone really
2: was interested in that answer. I think that's a good answer too. Uh, Nicolette, I want you to answer.
1: Oh, what is a Female orgasm? Yeah, what, what would you say? Yeah. Um, okay, what's so
2: up? Someone came in and said, what is a female orgasm? Here, we'll do a scenario. Okay. I'm raising my hand. Yes, Simone in the back. (laughs) What is female orgasm?
1: Female orgasm (laughs) is something that happens... Um, firstly, I don't like to call it a female orgasm because lots of people, Mm. um, might identify with different genders. But if we're talking about people with vulvas or vaginas, um, it's basically what happens when you stimulate certain parts of the body. Um, and an orgasm actually happens in your brain, even though there's a physical response. And so Mm. it consists of lots of different pleasurable, usually pleasurable feelings that kind of feel like your body is both relaxed and excited at the same time. Mm. Um, And it usually ends with like a feeling of relief afterwards. Some people get this from um, touching themselves. Some people get it from having someone else touch you. And some people get it from like doing other random things like riding a bicycle.
2: (laughs) Oh my God, Nicoletta, that was such a good answer. (laughs) That Fuck. was incredible. I feel educated. That I was feel incredible. educated. Does everyone know
1: what the female orgasm I is now? I feel
2: educated. I would have said, um, I would have said, That's a great question. I think it's interesting that you're making a distinction between the female orgasm and the male Mm, orgasm mm. because Mm -hmm. an orgasm, as my co-teacher Nicoletta just wonderfully explained, is both a (laughs) mental and physical feeling and it has to do with kind of a buildup of pleasure and then this releasing of it. And you might think that the male orgasm is ejaculation, but Mm. actually men... Are people with penises can ejaculate without orgasm, and can also God. orgasm without ejaculation. So it really isn't like a physical, tangible result. It's look really at, just something you do is in why your we're body. are all into
1: it because look at our amazing answers.
0: <laughs> yeah, like- no, that's ah, oh, that's that was just beautiful, both of you. It's interesting because I froze because now that I've been trained, kind of in a clinical, physical body realm. I just can't help but think about. I'm literally picturing like the Masters and Johnson cycle of kind of arousal and whatnot, and I'm just thinking of what the neurotransmitters and hormones are that cause these pleasurable feelings. So there was no way I was going to go there with these students as my first answer. Like that was something I would want to teach and whatnot. But what you all said was so much more palatable than than um than talking about nitty gritty hormones and neurotransmitters. Well, we we so also had so time cool. to like think
1: about it, but yeah. I think
0: that. That just shows that there's so many
1: different styles and ways to do sex ed. And what totally. I think is great, totally. like you were saying, is to, and opening it up for conversation and questions is because everyone might have a different perspective
2: on how they say it. And in reading some of these questions. Speaking other- of perspectives, Nicoletta's like cracking up silently from reading a question. I like,
1: uh, yeah, so I'm reading the questions oh, and
2: I'm like half crying
1: from like sadness that yeah. people in Aren't high they school extraordinary. Yeah, well that people in high school don't, don't know. know some of these things already. I'm just I know. like shocked it was but I'm so proud that they feel that they were able to ask them. Yes. Yeah, so I'm feeling sad that they didn't know, proud that they were able to ask, grateful that they felt comfortable yep. with you and also like yes. funny because some of them are Funny, so just to read a couple totally. others. Um, yeah. Why do people become porn stars? How much do they get paid? You can tune into some of our past episodes. Oh yeah, please that. tune into
0: some of our past episodes. Yeah. Uh, why can't a girl get pregnant if she swallow nut? <laughs> I had never known that nut was a word for semen. <laughs>
2: oh come on! <laughs> See, they were also
0: teaching you, Elise. <laughs> Oh, they were completely teaching me. I raised my hand and I said, I have no idea what this means. They loved it. Can you catch STDs from eating butt? (laughs) Yes, you can. (laughs) Yes, you
1: can. That was a good question. Um, That was a great question. Let's see. I heard, what is this one? I heard a lady had to get her foot cut off when her
0: IUD moved and caused a disease. That's it. How did you answer that that one? Well, we really unpacked that one. So I (laughs) was like, well, can you help me? Can you help me understand what, you know, I did a lot of good reflective listening. So I was like, yeah, because you you don't want to shame them, even if the question
1: sounds ridiculous. Right.
0: Right. It sounded ridiculous. And, and so what I basically did, and there was another one that said, you can, I heard you can get cancer if someone sucks your neck. So I kind of answered those two together Whoa! because I said, what I'm hearing in each of these questions is that something sexual, something happened with like a sexual body part or, you know, something, some body part, and then there was a disaster. So let's think about this message or, you know, whatever. We, we went in a, few, in a few ways. But with the IUD one, I explained that there's no way it could have possibly moved somewhere to your foot, but that the only way I could have seen that happening is for some reason that the same person that had their IUD move a little bit also might have had a foot, issue or a circulation issue and then they had an infection and got to get amputated an infection yeah right i had to get amputated and these students are very used to having family members with diabetes who get um necrosis which means the skin um and your foot dies because there's not enough blood flow and they are very familiar with people having toes and feet amputated so i kind of separated that and then with the sucking neck and the cancer thing I also talked about how I'm not sure about the sucking part but that someone with swollen lymph nodes which are include in the neck and in the um, armpits and whatnot that swollen lymph nodes can be a sign of cancer and so I wonder if there was a mixing of stories yes you
1: made sense of that that is and I'm glad you didn't shame them there was another one yeah not at all there's there's so many other great ones before we move on to the next thing. Um, one that, like, sure. makes me sad is, um, why do schools only have sex ed classes for straight oh. students?
0: That was so painful, and I was really, oh I God. by the end of the class, I really hope that the person felt um, affirmed and included because we had to, at various times, to- or I had to, at various times, rein in the like homophobic comments that were being made. And I made it clear from the beginning, like not tolerated. I'm going to do my best. Right. Like why, you know, we came up with rules as a group and it was very hard to stay to the rules. I will say that, like I was doing a lot of crowd control policing with the rules, even though we had group come up with them. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, but I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I identify as female. Like these are my pronouns. These are my body parts. And like, I'm going to speak about, when I say the word sex, it can mean a lot of different things. So I'm going to really clarify what I mean by each type of thing. And if you ever have a question, please please ask it. And, you know, there's no such thing as a dumb question. And anytime we talked about a sexual experience, I was always really, really trying to be inclusive with language. But people were making a lot of comments of uh, saying yucky, yuck, gross, that's nasty about Everything. anal sex oh. and about um, yeah they didn't really find heterosexual sex nasty uh, at least out loud they didn't vocalize that Can it be so, so when up? someone's <laughs> <laughs> I mean who knows but I could I said when I would hear someone saying that I said I said we don't we don't speak that way in here um, like this is a safe space and um, instead of saying that's nasty you could say oh I haven't tried that that's different that's unique and I taught them the little phrase that I use with kindergartners, which is don't we don't young. yuck somebody's yum. Yes. Right. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, I mean I I we did our best, but I that was really painful for me to see because yeah. um I just yeah, I like I was aching for that person. And I hope that some of what we talked about through the class provided them with some feeling of inclusion and whatnot.
1: Well, before we move to our next thing, I just wanted to read the last one, which really applies to Sluts and Scholars, is why when girls sure. have sex, they a hoe, and when boys do it, it's okay. So oh, that was great. You were talking about a lot of taboo things in relation to sex. Yeah, how did
0: you answer that question? So what I did is I said back to them, does anyone know what that is called when we— <laughs>
2: Say, I'm raising my hand. I'm raising thing, my hand. Oh my God. Were you that thing, annoying student in class, Simone? <laughs> Just kidding. I am still that okay, annoying student. Okay, I'm calling student. on you,
0: Simone. <laughs> what did you say? Double standard. That's right. And that's what a child, or sorry, a teenager to my right said. And I was, I said, that's absolutely right. Can you tell us what that means? And then I said to them, so what do you guys think? Do you agree with that? And they had a great time unpacking it. I mean, they they were really kind of all over the place, and they also were wondering why it's okay for some women to be more emotional and less socially accepted for men to be emotional oh. about breakups. And they just totally went with it. So I really, I I did myth busting and I did crowd control and volume control and shame control. But Which I it really sounded like it tried to turn things back. Which was very needed, but I really tried to turn this stuff back on them because they're going to learn more from each other anyways, yeah. and, and and they welcomed me, but these kids had just met me. I mean, it was kind of insane how much we were able to talk about together as a group, and I'm I'm glad that we had that safe space. But, I mean, they had literally—unless they had come to the nurse's office in the prior few months, they had never met me.
2: Yeah. So, it sounds I like wanted them
0: to be each other's experts.
2: It sounds like you're extremely good at interacting with younger folks. And um, that you. brings me to what you're working on now, which is my understanding is you're becoming a sure. critical care nurse for children. Right? That's right. So, what does that mean? Absolutely. Is that palliative care for dying so- children? So palliative, okay, so the great question. So
0: there's kind of three parts to this. There's the fact that I like working with kids. So that's the pediatric part. So that means like babies through teenagers. And then critical care means like high intervention, high acuity. So someone's really sick and we're going to do a lot to try to get them better. Mm-hmm. So you're hooked up to lots of monitors. You might be on a breathing machine. You might have tons of tubes in your body, but we're doing lots of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Palliative care, and I'm interested in that. And then palliative care can happen not, it is a common misconception that palliative care equals hospice. It does not. Hospice is care if you are um, on your way to dying or actively dying. And I Mm. am very interested in that. And I do do that. Palliative care can be provided at any stage of illness. And the goal is to provide someone with comfort, pain relief, and the highest quality of life as they define it. So sometimes you are dying and receiving palliative care so that you can sleep better and to help your nausea. But sometimes you're living and you're going to keep living, but you just need some comfort Mm. and and not just aggressive treatment. And so where I see myself fitting is I want to bridge the space, the very large gap that is full of fear and stigma between palliative care and critical care, because I think they can be synergistic. And I think we can give aggressive interventions to a kid that's going to live, but we can also side-by-side do palliative things. Hmm.
1: Do you think that's what got you interested in nursing? Because I remember when we first went to school together, I think you were looking more mm-hmm. to go the doctor route. And I think in in talking right. with you, it seems like you noticed that nurses were the ones who were kind of providing that more palliative care and that human to human experience.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah. I realized that in order to spend the time that I wanted to spend with patients, so with the kids and with their families, I wouldn't have the time, enough time to do that um, as an MD. And mm. so I wanted to be um, a nurse practitioner because they have. Lots of autonomy and independence, but approach care from the nursing perspective, which is very holistic. And now I look back, and I'm like, how did I not think of this before? It is such an obvious uh, result of my personality. Like it they're totally, it's so congruent with my like nurturing um, personality. Not that you cannot be a nurturing physician. There are many nurturing physicians. Right, but just um, the amount of time but, and flexibility that you might have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and you know what I've learned since going into nursing, which is really cool for me and allows me to kind of also use my interests in sex and psychology and whatnot is that nurses are one, they're supposed to be huge patient advocates, which is wonderful. Um, in addition to being healers, but they're also, um, supposed to be health educators. Mm -hmm. And so literally, like you're supposed to do the, the vast um, majority of health education for a patient, like nurses are counted on for that. Yeah. And that's super exciting to me because I've always loved teaching and I think it's super exciting to give people information that then they can use to make decisions about their bodies and their for families. Sure. I'm super
1: glad that they have somebody there who's educated like you. Like we've talked about this on the podcast before, but most folks in a mm-hmm. health profession don't get a lot of sexuality training. Um, and Correct. I'm wondering if you do some of those like intakes around sex and sexuality
0: for, for your clients and what those can look like? Great question. So there's various ways that sexual health histories, as well as IPV, intimate partner violence, which is the current term rather than saying domestic violence, we say IPV. So sexual health and IPV screenings are done in the emergency room. They're done in primary care visits. They're done when you're admitted to the hospital for illness or surgery. And it kind of depends. I mean, I have not done, that does not directly apply to my work with little kiddos, but I have taken sexual health histories for teenagers and for adults. And I have learned that it's often the first time they're being asked these questions, which is interesting because it's on their medical record and is supposed to be asked every time they interact with a healthcare professional. So that wow. is kind of interesting. So I found that for some people, it is a scary thing. And especially I was working um, with adults um, since like January, from like January to May in the hospital. And none of them were there for quote sexual issues. They were there for heart attacks, and lung surgery, and kidney disease, and liver disease, and breast surgery, and whatnot. But uh, everyone has a body, and people use their bodies in different ways, as we know, and they also have, like, emotions, and that can impact your body. And so, to me, it felt like, duh, we have to talk about this. Now, a lot of my patients were old enough to be my grandparents, uh, so I was old enough to be their grandchild. And um, and now you're asking I them would about begin sex. conversations. <laughs> right, and I'm asking them about sex and so what oh you, would you find out? generationally about comfort. Yeah, so let's see. okay. Uh, my favorite story that I wanted to tell you guys was um, about how even when we don't think that something's sexual, we have we have to ask about sex. And this I found out because I was not taking a sexual history, but I was just chatting with one of my patients who was suffering from a very scary lung disease, Uh, the only treatment for which is a lung transplant, which is a really big deal. Wow! And she was having a lot of trouble breathing. And so she was on various machines and she was lovely and we were just chatting and chatting. And I came to learn about kind of the arc of her illness and I asked her when she first learned she was sick and and then I got the sense that there was some she kept talking about her family but her family seemed very separate from her illness and Mm -hmm. so what came to what was revealed is that she had not told her spouse her husband of her illness until very recently meaning very advanced in this uh, situation Mm -hmm. and I I asked her how she ended up telling him rather than saying, well, why didn't you tell him? I just said, oh, well, so I'm curious about how you told him. Ugh, and you're the so way a great, a great up, way to
1: ask so as not to be like, well, why not? Oh, thank you.
0: Yeah, I didn't want to be accusatory, but the way it came up is, and she looks at me and she kind of gets a little, like, a little nervous. And so I kind of had a guess that we were going into sexual territory, but I was just super calm. and <laughs> But you're also, well, like, so excited. <laughs> Yeah. I was like, ooh. So she was like, well, we were, you know, and I just said, I just stayed, you know, quiet, let her finish. And I, she said, we were being intimate and I was short of breath. And so my husband said, what is going on? What's wrong with you? And this woman was in her forties and, and she just broke down crying and told him. And there you go. Someone with lung disease think, you know, not thinking about how this is or or is thinking about how this is going to impact a lot of parts of her life and mm-hmm. is thus nervous or afraid, And but that's how it came up. And mm. so that was really interesting for me, and that would have been such a critical nugget, I think, for all of the clinicians in her care to know because we needed to be respectful of the dynamics with privacy and confidentiality um, with her family members. We couldn't just tell them everything because she needed to be the gatekeeper since... There was stuff she wasn't comfortable sharing. So yeah. that was interesting for me. And and I basically learned that I should just I can if I want to, if I'm feeling this the person's energy and seems a little scary, I can say, I realize that these questions might be a little bit might seem a little bit awkward or um or uh uncomfortable, but um you do not have to answer any question you don't feel comfortable with. I ask these questions of all my patients. And I see lots of different Especially bodies. Especially the ones all day I think long. are sluts. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. You don't, want, you don't want the person to feel targeted. Right. You just don't want them to feel targeted. And you definitely need to ask them about their, and you guys do such a beautiful job. You, you folks do such a good job Thank of this you. on your podcast um, using really wonderful, inclusive, gender neutral language. And I have learned. Through working with kids, actually, I've never, never had an issue where I misgendered an adult in terms of in my head, like was looking at the patient, had come up with what I was expecting to see. And then it was the opposite or something like that. Like that hasn't happened to me, but I have had children where I, um, look at them and address them and have a preconceived notion of what's going to happen when I pull down their pants. And then it's a surprise. Mm. So I've definitely gotten really, really um, been practicing a lot, and our, my nursing school like forces us to do this, but it's also a great exercise just for daily life um, in asking people how they would like to be called. And I try not to be alienating of people that have never heard of pronouns because if I were to say, what are your preferred pronouns? Then some people are going to be like, what? Like, what's what is that? that? You know or- what? I was at Sierra Camp. Yeah.
1: Uh, so Elise and I also yeah. worked at a, the same summer camp, uh, Sanford Sierra Camp. And I was shadowing a girl who's on the autism spectrum for the week. And during the kids' groups, oh, they wonderful. asked them for their name and their gender pronouns for the 11 wow. to 12-year-old age groups. Oh, my wow. God. The
0: yahoos. Oh, no, I think it was the Midori's. Oh, the Midori's. Yes, you're right. Yes. Yahoo's are nine and ten, so it was eleven. 12. We have names for that the kids' group. I mean,
2: when you say Midori, I just that's... think of Shibari.
0: <laughs> well, I think of Midori as that yes. green drink. I think, yeah, I think of that green liqueur. Um, yes, exactly. Um, no, I mean that's amazing. Did the kids understand it? Had they been exposed to that?
1: Um, some, some knew, and um, the person who initiated that one of the counselors explained what that was, and so they cool. like, used themselves as an example to explain that. And even yes. the girl who I shadow, who's on the spectrum,
2: understood. That's incredible. Did wow. any did any kids um, say something that either that you didn't expect or use a gender nonconforming pronoun?
1: Uh nobody in that group did but it sounds like it had happened in like weeks prior at the camp. That's awesome. Um, wow. But I think it just left open space for that and I love that yes. I love that you you made the comment just about asking people about sex even when it's not about sex. Um this is like something yeah. that I've run into and struggled with in my work is that I've had more mm. mainstream old school marriage family therapists be like, I'm worried that mm. you're going to focus too much on sex, that I'm going to maybe wow. maybe mm-hmm. make the sessions about sex when they don't need to be. And so I've been, like, mm-hmm. I've been cautious about that and worried that right. I'm going to push that onto people. But I also feel that sex and relationships are parts of people's lives. And just like you're taking a right. history of everything else, why wouldn't you take a history of that? Like, why does it need to be some special thing? It doesn't mean I have to hear about it or we're going to focus on it, but... To know about their sex life to me is just as important about knowing about their other health history.
2: For sure. I wanna know how totally. you look
1: and
0: what you eat. Yeah, exactly. That's all.
2: <laughs> That's it.
0: One thing, one thing that that comes to mind is we we learned in my class on sexual health history taking, um, that and I had never thought about this, but just in the way we structure our physical exam when we're asking questions. Obviously, we have all different clinicians have ways of doing their physical exam. I like to go head to toe, which means that um, I go from the top to the bottom of the person's body. But when we talk about body systems, we always save what we call GU, genital urinary, for the end. Like we literally put it at the very end, which means you could run out of time in your visit, but you've covered the heart and you've covered the lungs, but you've, you may not get to the critical the thing, heart and which the, the person so really linked. wants to talk about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No kidding. And um, as you guys talked about with your amazing guest about, like, anal sex and rectal health and whatnot. Oh, thank you. People don't even, like, think to look at a person's bottom. Right. Um, because, and, and think that that has anything to balls. do with <laughs> their current state. I mean, it's just so, like, it's part of everything. So, yeah, I think, I just think it's... I think it's important, and I think that I agree that it's really important to set the tone. So, with my patients, I say, "Hi, I'm Elise. I'm a student nurse. I use she/her pronouns, and I say it slowly. Uh, I mean, I mean, I speak really, really fast, so I just say it slowly, so it's not like I use she/her pronouns, and they don't know what it is.
2: Right? And then I say,
0: as slowly as you, you can, can you please tell me? Right, I go. Can you please tell me your full name and date of birth? Because I have to do that. And I check their hospital band. And I check their medical records. And then I say, "And what would you like me to call you?" And then they might say Joe, or they might say Mary Beth, or they might say they them. And then or if, they might say master, on master, de- right, <laughs> daddy. They might say like, um, "Daddy His did excellency. Say Daddy, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I did listen to your episode about that daddy thing too with the um, the woman who. Used the pacifiers. So, yeah, they could say that. Yes. And then I say, if, it, if it's still, if I'm still kind of feel like there's something something else I need to ask, I might say, do you have preferred pronouns? Then yes. they can say no, or they can say, I don't know what that means. But I try to be really, and I say, I ask this to everyone. And it's also helpful when you're looking at the sheet of paper with their record, because you can mm-hmm. say, I see here it says, you know, yeah. Nicoletta Heidegger, but what would you like to be called? I mean, because I, for a gotten, lot of our kids, they have a preferred name.
1: You've gotten obviously more comfortable asking these questions, and it, we still know that sex is a taboo subject, even in the medical field. Um, and yes. I feel like you're doing two things that overlap that are taboo topics: you're dealing with maybe sex and sexuality, and you're dealing with death and dying. And I feel like that's such Correct. a huge taboo topic that we aren't taught either in our culture. Like we, I feel, mm-hmm. I feel that we live in a very death phobic culture. And I wonder yes. how you got so comfortable talking about it, um, and how you deal with this in your work. Like I'm just imagining taking care of really sick kids, and also sex when dying, mm-hmm. and sex and dying, and th- like how how do oh, you I do love, this? Yeah.
0: Okay, so one thing, um, one one thing in terms of sex and dying that I just thought about is: so we think we have this. Weird cultural narrative that disabled people, sick people, old and young people don't have sex or can't have sex or can't enjoy sex. Well, if you listen have to sexual. episodes of Sluts
2: and Scholars, that myth is dispelled. <laughs> anyway, carry on. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, but I
0: think, too, when we are working with um, adults at the end of life, we need to remember that they might still want to express their sexuality in whichever way it is, right? So. Mm-hmm. I, that is absolutely not my area of expertise, and I hope that there are people that are, like, geriatric nurses oh, yes. that are also sex I know a sex therapist and, like,
1: who focuses on um, people in older life, and I think not even uh, just older life, but post-disease um, or chronic illness, because Amazing. most doctors don't include that as part of their care. Like like you're saying, right. they, you can include that in palliative care, in my opinion, because it's like yes. we, we, we take care of maybe all the health concerns and all the physical stuff, But what if someone just had a mastectomy and nobody talks to them about how this is going to affect their sex life, their relationship, their body
0: positivity, like it should be included. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even we think about it more obviously with a mastectomy or with incontinence, which means like you can't control your bowel or bladder Mm -hmm. um, function. So like you might accidentally poop or accidentally pee, but um those are kind of, you know, blatantly involving sexual, uh, organs or, um, like what we call sexual organs. But, but sex also has to do with like after a heart attack or when you're dying of lung disease, because your heart pumps blood and blood is required to have arousal, right? Mm -hmm, Blood mm -hmm, flows to the sexual organs. And that's what, um, that's what we feel like that, that delicious, like engorged feeling or whatever. So I think like, death has to do with if, with all body systems and absolutely this spiritual, existential thing. Yeah. And, um, and sex should be part of that. And I don't feel um, like I've done enough exploration of that because mm-hmm. adults are not my target population. Yeah. But what I will say about, um, about sex and death is that we are really uncomfortable as a society talking about them and... Um, Joking about them, and I think that even some comedians that are really comfortable seem to be really comfortable joking about um, about race and ethnicity and cultural stereotypes shy away from death and sex. Uh, and I wish that in various spheres of our world we could be more comfortable with them. For me, in terms of working with dying children, it feels like such an unnatural thing, which is why Mm. uh, many clinicians and citizens of the world are uh, squeamish about it or fearful. And yeah, you hearing hearing the phrase
2: you just say "dying children," like I just totally got tense. Yeah, right. It's
0: right. It's totally bizarre. And I, I never thought that I would do something particularly at, with end of life, but my mother is a grief therapist and she works with children who have lost parents and parents who have lost kids. Oh, wow. As well as kids who have lost siblings. So she just does all types of loss and bereavement and grief. And she's an amazing social worker. So that's and how you got
1: so comfortable
0: maybe thinking about grief I care. I think so. Yeah. And I, I always, I, I do remember growing up and thinking, I'm not going to do what my mom does as many children do. Yes, and then we become our parents, and it's shocking. Right? Like, it's so, and then here I am, and I think it was a series of, I was working in medical settings that didn't necessarily have to do with death, but I had relationships, um, I built relationships with patients that ended up dying, and there were a few kind of key kiddos along the way, and that kind of showed me, wow, this is a really interesting thing. It is a privilege to walk alongside a family going through this. Mm. And then I saw some really unfortunate situations, either with, quote, preventable death, in my opinion, or uh, the clinicians making it a really unpleasant experience for the families. Mm. And I thought, whoa, I really, there's no way I can fix all these things in the world that I want to, quote, fix. But if I could participate in this really fragile, beautiful thing or or passage, then that would be really cool because I think that I have something to offer. How do you take— And I just kind of, like, found it.
1: How do you take care of yourself um, and deal with mm. all of that oh, such loss? Such a good question. Like, I feel— Such a therapist just in, question. Yeah, well, just in hearing it and, like, imagining yeah. you seeing all of that, like, how do you take care of yeah. yourself? Because you, I've known— for how long i've known you i've always known you as like a pretty yeah. positive upbeat um yeah. energetic person and i just wonder if that wears at you, you or not
0: mm. thank you i definitely feel it i feel like the waves i feel i get really really um close with patients and because it's like a really intimate thing to be caring for someone And then I am really sad when they die. But Mm. I write, so I journal about everything. I also definitely allow myself to cry. I process with colleagues. Mm. Um, There's a really wonderful um, community within most hospitals that I've worked, especially the ones, like, the people that take care of sick children are a pretty unique group of people. Like, you wouldn't go into it accidentally or just to do it. Like it's, you're kind of drawn to it in a strong way. And so that peer support is really helpful. And I think uh, exercise and meditation and sleep and yoga and art are really um, important ways that I take care of myself. But really, I mean, I just feel it. Like I write it down and I cry and I talk about it and I um, do not feel like the way through it is to disconnect, or um, or like dissociate. block it out. Which I think I, I've heard a lot yeah, of doctors dissociate. say that they feel like they have to right um, connect- dissociate right. a little yes. from
1: it because otherwise it's, it, it's too, too much to bear.
0: Right, and what I would say to that is, I am learning how to have healthy boundaries. Mm. Thank goodness, so that it doesn't take over. Right. So that I'm not holding these these pockets of grief in my body, but I do Still being let a human the waves being. of grief pass over me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think actually that's what makes me good at it. And I hope, hope, hope that I'll continue to be able to have a balance between taking care of myself and taking care of other people so that I can have a long career in this Well, it
2: field. sounds like you have a good um, handle on Because it's not this. easy. Yeah, I would imagine. Well, oh, I hope so. Thank um, you. Did you have another question about death, <laughs> yeah, Nicoletta? Yeah,
1: I have one more question about death. Um... I know you were talking sure. about hospice or palliative care. Um, sure. How do, do you feel like you have to convince um, patients to find joy and enjoyment, especially in their last days or in their hmm. sick days? Or, like, what do you do to help them, I don't know, find pleasurable things to do, even when they're maybe feeling tired or they're exhausted from treatment or, um, yeah, or they're feeling unmotivated?
0: That is very interesting. I think it is probably different for every stage of life as well as, of course, the individual patient. So Mm -hmm. there are some illnesses where you are just completely miserable and we need to do distraction. There's others where you feel great and your brain is fully energetic. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I will do is I will speak to what I have the most experience with, which is kids at that stage and helping their parents do that. Because Mm. when a kid is sick or at the end of life, The kid may be able to express things they want to do. And if they do, that is so awesome. And we do it. It, like, we, I have this vivid memory of one of the kids, the first kid I took care of that died many, many years ago. He was such a special little boy. And he, I am like totally afraid of mayonnaise. I have like thrown many mayonnaise tantrums in my life. (laughs) If it's like, if it's like accidentally gotten onto my sandwich that I like expressly, forbid someone from putting mayonnaise on. So my family, my family knows that I just hate mayonnaise. And I had this little boy, this dear little boy, I have chills as I, as I remember this. And he, there were very few things that he would eat. Uh, He was seven and he was dying and he would, he would eat pieces of bread that he wanted mayonnaise, little individual mayonnaise, like warm individual mayonnaise packets squeezed onto and then dipped in chocolate milk. And I had to just get over it. And the best part was, I believe, I believe somehow my hands were dirty or there was something where (laughs) there was no better way, but I had to open the packet with my teeth. Never do that for a condom, side note. But (laughs) it was, it was just for some reason, I don't remember why there was glue on my hands or I don't know. And I had to open these mayonnaise packets and it was just totally worth it because When you're working with a kid at the end of life and they want to eat something, you give them that food and you take them on a walk in their stroller or their wagon and you dress up like Harry Potter and whatever it is. And I I have worked at this incredible place. It is one of two pediatric palliative care facilities in the entire U.S. I worked at one in uh, California near Oakland called George Mark Children's Home. And we had a therapy horse. We had therapy dogs. It's a very unique place. We need more of these. But because the U.S. is so uncomfortable with children dying, you don't really see a lot of these types of places here. They have them in Canada and the U.K. and Europe and whatnot. But we would just do whatever. We would do drums. We would do singing. We would play with textures. And mm-hmm. I had a lot of kids with a lot of sens- sensory integration challenges. And we would, like, lie down on a vibrating beanbag and look at glowing in the dark things. And that sounds so awesome. So it's awesome when the kid... It's so fun. It's awesome when the kid can express, right? Because then we can really, like, we can work with that. And a kid doesn't have to be verbal. I've worked with many children who can't walk or talk or see or something like that. And I just follow their body language. I I worked with a little baby boy who was maybe five weeks old who was born without eyes. And I had never realized how reliant I was on someone's eye eye movements Mm. if they couldn't talk. But I didn't have eye movements for him. However his eyebrows moved and I could tell when he was listening or in pain or in pleasure. And so I would just follow his eyebrows. So I feel like even if the kid doesn't tell you, you can, you can learn their body language. If the kid cannot tell you, but the parents are involved, then we try to empower the parents and, and give them the support to do what the kid wants or what, what is important to them. So if a couple has a baby that delivers a baby that, um, and this is called perinatal hospice. So this is when a baby is born Mm. at what we call the limits of viability. Mm -hmm. So we're not sure how long they're going to live, but it's going to be a short time. Um, If the parent wants to, for example, take the baby to the zoo or on a hike or whatever, or go fishing and the baby's being carried in a carrier or whatever, great. I mean, I think any good pediatric team that works with really sick kids will absolutely encourage and empower I think a that's family a way to I do that. Bra- and I, I haven't, I haven't like met any family that hasn't had at least some interesting kind of out of the box idea of, of something that was
1: important no, to them. That's that. For sure. I um, think I feel very like moved and yeah, tearful. Well, I'm, I'm like
2: crying, but yeah, um, I think it's very interesting that you bring up uh, perinatal death for for babies. Um, So I am a full-spectrum doula, so I do abortion, miscarriage, and stillbirth. But um, in my stillbirth training, I was trained in perinatal loss support. And one of the most interesting things, and this comes back to you talking about the U.S. being afraid of talking about kids dying, is everybody knows what SIDS is, right? SIDS is this like totally unexpected thing when a kid dies. And only like 2,000 kids die of SIDS a year. But there are like something like 20,000 perinatal losses a Mm. year. And we just Mm -hmm. don't talk about it. And people have this deep shame and are unable to process it publicly and Mm -hmm. talk about it publicly. And so I think the work that you're doing is so important important to, oh to God, so normalize amazing. and support and Ugh. and I'm just I'm so I'm so grateful for the work you do. I kind of um want to ask you about a thing that's not on this topic um that we kind of brought up in our conversations before and ter- coming back to your interactions with patients and intake and talking about how sure. There are patients who have questions, who, who, who wish that physicians would ask certain questions or that they have questions yes. that they're dying to ask but are afraid to. And so <laughs> I just ask sure. is a
1: poor a choice t- of words.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: no,
1: I have
0: that on my notes too. Questions that patients are dying to be asked. It's exactly right. It's crazy, right?
2: And so what, what, what are those? And is there a way for people to um, kind of have their physicians ask them those questions?
0: great question. Um, And thank you for your work as a doula. So one thing just occurred to me, which is that I, I was trying to think about our squeamishness around sex and death. And I think additionally around perinatal loss and just any kind of difficult thing. And it's one thing to have an illness that doesn't, I mean, it's just, there's no easy way to talk about illness basically. But what I think is at the heart of our fear and discomfort is we have this, we think or feel that if we talk about something, it makes it real and we're gonna catch it. Mm. Or if we ask someone about their loss, it might be contagious. Yeah. And we're gonna talk. We're either gonna, we're either gonna upset them and we're so worried about Make upsetting it worse. them that it's not worth it. Yeah. As if they've forgotten that either their child died, their husband died, or that they or that lost we're so afraid the, of
1: that happening in our own life
0: that we don't want
1: to face yeah. it. Yeah,
0: right. And so I think I think that's in terms of interacting with others, right? So maybe doctors are afraid to ask their patients or or whatnot. But I think maybe patients are afraid to say things out loud because it kind of exter- I mean, makes it real from a psychological perspective. It's great, right? It externalizes it. It gets it out of your head. Awesome. That's so much less scary. However. Some people feel like it makes it real saying it out loud. And mm. so I have, I have felt like um, through building relationships with patients and then them sharing this, some of the things they've said that they've never been asked about that they wish they were asked about are things like pleasure, are things like emotional intimacy or emotional satisfaction in a relationship. We are often trained so much at recognizing signs of abuse and misconduct that we don't even ask if something is like a net positive we just look for ways it's detracting from someone's life. Mm-hmm. Um we're so we're so focused on disease and unwanted pregnancy or unplanned pregnancy that we don't think about sex as an enjoyable thing and and ask patients about if they're having uh, if they're experiencing pleasure and there's mm-hmm. there's various ways to do that but but people i think are often worried that it's not it doesn't deserve to be talked about unless it's like a really overtly terrible thing. Yeah. Um, like they have a large bump that's oozing or something. Um, so yeah. So people people want to be asked about pleasure. They want to be asked about emotions. Um, they want to be asked about um, like I, I it's it's going to sound so ridiculous because no one said the words inner peace to me. Um, no one said to me like they don't ask me about inner peace. But but that's me kind of summarizing. Um, some conversations I've had where just like, how are you doing? Yeah. Like, just like, how are you feeling? Like not just the first thing you ask when you walk in, Hey, how are you? How are you? Oh, fine. Fine. And then they do your history and then you leave, but really like, like, how are you? Like, yes. And, and I find there's a few ways of asking that, but you can, sometimes you need to provide some clarification. So saying things like, how are you in terms of, how are you feeling about your body today? Is your butthole um, stinging? Because some patients, yeah, is your butthole stinging, like, <laughs> is kind of something that's hard to lead with, but we could get there.
2: No, but I, I just mean, I just mean.
1: What, that's not your first opening no, question? What No, I do you guess mean? I'm saying, I'm
2: saying for me, like, personally, as someone who is still pretty comfortable talking about stuff, like, it can be hard yeah. for me to tell my doctor, like, my butthole is yes. stinging, right? And so. Yes. Like, <laughs> you're going to let us just, like, stare right at me. I'm sorry that you're She's like, where are that you sensation? going with this? No, my butthole isn't stinging presently. But I'm just saying, like, I if it's on my record that my butthole has stung, like, I want you to ask oh, me about it. Like, I don't want to have to bring it up. <laughs> yeah. On, on yeah. that note. So I think—
0: We have think, to wrap yeah, up I after think, that. No problem. No problem. But I think, yeah, I think basically— Clinicians need to get better at asking and less uncomfortable and just get over your discomfort, right? right? Like we got to practice because it's not fair. We're here to be of service. And then I think what patients can do is, um, my one little tidbit is, or my one little tip is bring a little piece of paper when you go to the doctor, because sometimes you show up in the clinician's office and you get totally freaked out and you forget all your questions. Oh yeah. I always have a list. If they're not going to, right, if they're not going to rise to the occasion, which may not happen, and ask you all the things, at least have a tidbit list. And then I've even done this where I've go, I'm you know going through, going through, talking about all these things, and then I have a sex question list on my list. And then I go, oh, wait, oh, I just realized. And I've even kind of faked it sometimes because I was so nervous to bring it up because they didn't ask anything. But I would just say, like, speak up, speak up. You can't expect the doctor to read your mind. And doctors, you can't expect the patient to read your mind. So yeah. we just all need to practice speaking up. Um, And I thought you were even going to say to use the
1: paper to offer people to write down stuff. Cause sometimes, at least for adolescents that I've worked with, like the box of questions, to offer them something to write with if they feel like they can't even say it out loud. But I think for doctors, even bringing it up, even if they don't have the, even if that question doesn't apply to them, I think it opens up just a open lines of communication and a level of comfort that like everything that you are and are bringing in is okay and okay to talk about.
0: Totally, I totally agree with that. You guys, you've got it right. You're
1: so amazing.
2: We have to wrap up, and (laughs) you you were so wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for the work you do and for like the joy and comfort that you bring to like talking about these hard topics. And I don't know if you want to allow people to contact you directly, or any, or you just
1: want to give maybe some resources around grief and things that you do. But feel free to share whatever right now, so we can share it with our listeners. Sure. So
0: I will. Uh, let's see. I don't have, I've quit most social media, so I'm not really useful in that, uh, department. Um, and then in terms of grief resources, I can give you some of those to put in the show notes. Um, but I think basically, uh, awesome talking to people is the best way to get it. There's no one formula or textbook that tells you how to do this stuff even though I wish there
2: were. Well, you are a great jumping off point. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. As always, uh, dear listeners, if you want to keep up we're with it. We're still joy, on social media. We're still on social media. We're not cool. <laughs> we're not cool like Elise. Um, but yeah, you can find us on Instagram at and scholars on Twitter at scholars, and you can email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. Sluts and scholars. See you next time.